Patriots. Here we go. It's another Jesus night. And we're going to light it up like we always do. A little more energy. You thought you were all going to sleep tonight. Not a chance. Jesus is on fire, baby. Jesus is coming tonight. All right, I'll tell you, tonight we're going to hit another older sermon. One is supposed to be one of the most profound sermons of our time. 1776 by Witherspoon, Dominion of Providence over the Passions of Men, the sermon. I think you're going to like this one. Might run a little long tonight, so buckle up. But as we explore the intensity of the old pulpit the way it should be, rather than this marshmallow pulpit we have now, we start to truly understand the magnitude and fire that lives with that lived within the hearts of the many patriots that we had in this nation. Patriots, before we begin tonight, it's important that you take care of your home defense and do all you can to keep your skills up. And we have just the tool for you. You know how passionate I am about our Constitution and especially the Second Amendment, but just as passionate about being responsible and protecting my family. I discovered the perfect way to train with your firearm in the comfort of your own home and continue to improve your skills. It's called iTarget Pro, and this system is a game changer for me. All I did was download iTarget's proprietary app, load the laser bullet into my firearm, and start training. The system develops muscle memory, reaction speed, sight alignment, trigger control, and much more. Right now, save 10% plus get free shipping with the offer code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, when you go to itargetpro.com. With the cost of ammo through the roof, this is the perfect solution for you. That's the letter itargetpro.com, itargetpro.com. The offer code is BARDS, B-A-R-D-S. This is something you definitely need. Itarget Pro, check it out. You will not be disappointed. So, Patriots, this sermon tonight, the dominion over providence, dominions, excuse me, the dominion of providence over the passions of men is one of John Witherspoon's great sermons of the time. So, John Witherspoon was born 1723, died 1794. He was born in Scotland and educated in Edinburgh. Witherspoon came to America in 1768 to be president of the College of New Jersey i.e. Princeton, a position he held until 1792. Then blindness forced his retirement. He had led the popular party among Scottish Presbyterians before his immigration, and he was prominent among ecclesiastical leaders in America. In the pre-revolutionary years, the college at Princeton prospered under Witherspoon. With the Scottish-Irish influx into America, the Presbyterian Church enjoyed great popularity and prosperity in the country, especially in the Middle Atlantic colonies and on the frontier, where by 1776 there were many ministers who had been Witherspoon students. He closed the schism among the Presbyterians, and he made alliance with 
Ezra Stiles, president of Yale, to forge strong ties with the uh, with the Congregationalists of New England as the revolution bore down on the country. With Stiles, he shared a distaste for the new divinity and revel, revival, revivalism generally. He introduced into American thought the Scottish common sense philosophy of Thomas Reed and Dugald Stewart, which dominated the young nation's thought for a century. Because of Witherspoon, because Witherspoon had been captured and imprisoned in Scotland during the Highlander uprising in 1745 to 46, his critics called, called him a Jacobite. Witherspoon eschewed politics in America until 1774, but after that he was steadily participated, participated directly and indirectly in the leading events of the day. In, in 1776, he was elected to the Continental Congress in time to urge adoption of the Declaration of Independence and to be the only clergyman to sign in. To the assertion that America was not ripe for independence, he re retorted, In my judgment, sir, we are not only ripe, but rotting. <laughs> nice line. Witherspoon served in, intermittently in Congress until 1782 and was a member of over 100 legislative committees, including two vital standing committees, the Board of War and the Committee on Foreign Affairs. In the later role, he took a leading part in drawing up the instructions for the American peace commissioners who concluded the Treaty of Paris, which ended the war in September 1783. He later served in the New Jersey legislature and, legislature and was a member of the state's ratifying convention of the Constitution in 1787. Witherspoon has been called the most influential professor in American history not only because of his powerful writing and speaking style, and he was carefully attended to on all subjects but here and abroad, but also because of his long tenure at Princeton. His teaching and the reforms he made there radiated his influence across the country. He trained not only a substantial segment of the leadership among Presbyterians, but a number of political leaders as well. Nine of the 55 participants in the Federal Convention in 1787 were Princeton graduates, chief among them James Madison, who, among other things, spent an extra year studying Hebrew and philosophy with his, Witherspoon after his graduation in 1771. Moreover, his pupils included a president and a vice president of the United States, two once 21 senators, 29 representatives, 56 state legislatures, and 33 judges, three of whom were appointed to the Supreme Court. During the Revolution, his pupils were everywhere in positions of command in the American forces. Witherspoon's the, domin the dominion of providence over the passions of men caused a great stir when it was first preached in Princeton and published in Philadelphia in 1776 about a month before he was elected to the Continental Congress on June 22nd. He reminds his authors that the sermon is his first address on political matters from the pulpit. Ministers of the gospel have more important business to attend to than secular crises, but of course liberty is more than a mere, merely secular matter. Surely the wrath of men shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Psalm. Okay. 
Oh boy, I'll tell you, this is going to get interesting. They're using all the Roman numerals in there uh, in this one. Okay, we'll see what we can do. All right, Patriots, this I, this is going to be a longer sermon, but I think it also gives us a sense of the intensity and the duration of these older sermons. This isn't like a wham-bam, 30 minutes in church and get out. These were intense, well-drafted sermons that really were provocative. And so we are going to go down this journey, sit back, buckle up, get yourself a cup of coffee, throw your feet back, and let's walk back into colonial times. If you need a my pillow, you can grab one of those too. Just go over my pillow and hit the Bard's code. You know what that's about. Let's go back in time and let's re-enter the war through the eyes of the pulpit. There is not a greater evidence either of the reality or the power of religion than a firm belief of God's universal presence and constant attention to the influence and operation of his providence. It is by this means that the Christian may be said in the emphatical scripture language to walk with God and to endure as seeing him who is invisible. The doctrine of divine providence is very full and complete in a, in the sacred oracles. It extends not only to the things which we may think of great moment and therefore worthy of notice, but to things the most indifferent and inconsiderable. Quote, are, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, says our Lord, and one of them falleth not to the ground within the heavenly Father? Nay, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It extends not only to things beneficial and salutary or to the direction or and assistance of those who have are the servants of the living God, but to those things seemingly most hurtful and destructive and to persons the most refractory and disobedient. He overrules all his creatures and all their actions. Thus we are told that fire and Fire, hail, snow, vapor, and stormy wind fulfill his word. In the course of nature, and even so, the most impetuous and disorderly passions of men that are under no restraint from themselves and are yet perfectly subject to the dominion of Jehovah. They carry his commission, they obey his orders, they are limited and restrained by his authority, and they, are, and they conspire with everything else in promoting his glory. There is the greater need to take notice of this, that men are not generally sufficiently aware of the distinction between the law of God and his purpose. They are apt to suppose that as the temper of the sinner is contrary to the one, so the outrages of the sinner are able to defeat the other, than which nothing can be more false. The truth is plainly asserted, and nobody expressed by the psalmist in the text Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. This psalm was evidently composed as a song of praise of some signal victory, single victory obtained, which was at the same time a remarkable deliverance from the threatening danger. The author was one or other of the latter prophets and, uh, and, on, and the occasion probably the unsuccessful assault of Jerusalem by the army of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and the days of Hezekiah. Great was the insolence and boasting of his generals and servants against the city of the living God, as may be seen in the 36th chapter of Isaiah. Yet it pleased God to destroy their enemies, and by his own immediate interposition, 
to grant them deliverance. Therefore, the psalmist says in the fifth and sixth verses of the psalm, the stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep. None of the men of might have found their hands. At they at thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse are cast into deep sleep. After a few more remarks to the same purpose, he draws the inference and makes the reflection in the text. Quote, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain, which, by, which may be paraphrased thus. The fury and injustice of oppressors shall bring in a tribute of praise to thee, the influence of thy righteous providence shall be clearly discerned. The countenance and support thou wilt give to thine own people shall be gloriously illustrated. Thou shalt set the bounds which the boldest cannot pass. I am sensible, my brethren, that the time and occasion of this psalm may seem to be in one respect ill-suited to the interesting circumstances of this country at present. It was composed after the victory which obtained, whereas we are now put, now but putting on the harness and entering upon the imp, important contest, uh, and the length of which is it is impossible to foresee, and the issue of which it will perhaps be thought presumption to foretell. But as the truth, as the truth with respect to God's moral government is the same and unchangeable as the issue is the case of Sennacherib's invasion, did but lead the prophet to, to acknowledge it. Our duty and interest conspire in calling upon us to improve it, and I have chosen to insist upon it on this day of solemn humiliation, as it will probably help us to clear and explicitly view of what should be the chief subject of our prayers and endeavors, as well as great object of our hope and trust in our present situation. The truth then asserted in the text which I propose to illustrate and improve is that all the disorderly passions of men, whether exposing the innocent to private injury or whether they are the arrows of divine judgment in public calamity, shall in the end be the praise of God, or to apply it more particularly at the, the present state of the American colonies and the plague of war, the ambition of mistaken princes, the cunning and cruelty of oppressive and corrupt ministers, and even the inhumanity of brutal soldiers, however dreadful, shall finally promote the glory of God, and in, this, in the meantime, while the storm continues, his mercy and kindness shall appear in prescribing bounds to their rage and fury. In discouraging this subject, it is my intention through the assistance of divine grace. One, to point out to you in some particulars how the wrath of man praises God. Two, to apply these principles to our present situation by inference of truth for your instruction and comfort and by suitable exhortations to the duty of the important crisis. In the first place, I am to point out to you in some particulars how the wrath of man praises God. I say in some instances because it is far from being in my power either to mention or explain the whole. There is an unsearchable depth in the divine counsels, which it is impossible for us to penetrate. It is the duty of every good man to place the most unlimited confidence in divine wisdom and to believe that those measures of providence, 
that are most unintelligible to him are yet planned with the same skill and directed to the same great purposes as others, the reason and tendency of which he can explain in the clearest manner. But where revelation and experience enables us to discover the wisdom, equity, or mercy of divine providence, nothing can be more delightful or profitable to a serious mind, and therefore I beg your attention to the following remarks. In the first place, the wrath of man praises God as it is an example and illustration of divine truth and clearly points out the corruption of our own nature, which is the foundation stone of the doctrine of redemption. Nothing can be more absolutely necessary to true religion than a clear and full conviction of the sinfulness of our nature and state. Without this, there can be neither repentance in the sinner nor humility in the believer. Without this, that is, is said in Scripture of the wisdom and the mercy of God as providing our, a Savior is without force and without meaning. Justly does our Savior say, The whole have no need for of a physician, but those who, that are sick. I, cannot, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are not sensible that, that they are sinners will treat every exhortation to repentance and every offer of mercy with disdain and defiance. But where can we have a more affecting view of the corruption of our nature than in the wrath of man, when exerting itself in oppression, cruelty, and blood? It must be owned, indeed, that this truth is abundantly manifest in times of the greatest tranquility. Others may, if they please, treat corruption of our nature as a chimera. For my part, I see it everywhere, and I feel it every day. All the disorders in human society and the greatest part of even the unhappiness we are exposed to arises from the envy, malice, covetedness, and other lusts of man. If we and all about us were just what we ought to be in all respects, we should not need to go any further for heaven for it would be upon earth. But war and violence present in, spect- present in spectacle still more awful. How affecting is it to think that the lust of dom- domination should be so violent and universal, that man should so rarely be satisfied that their own possessions and acquisitions, or even with the benefits that would arise from mutual service, but should look upon the happiness and tranquility of others as an obstruction to their own that as if we as if the great law of nature were not enough dust thou art and the dust thou shalt return they should be so furious furiously set upon the destruction of each of each other it is shocking to think since the first murder of Ab- abel by his brother cain with havoc has has been made of man by man in every age what is it that, f- that fills the pages of history but the wars and contentions of princes and empires? What, what vast numbers has lawless ambition brought into the field and delivered as a prey to the destructive sword? If we dwell a little upon the circumstances, they become deeply affecting. The mother bears a child with pain, rears him, with laborious attendance of many years, 
Yet in the prime of life, in the vigor of health and bloom of beauty, in a moment he is cut down by the dreadful instruments of death. Every battle of the warrior is what with is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But the horror of the scene is not confined to the field of slaughter. Few go there unrelated and fall un- unlamented. In every hostile encounter, there must be the impression upon the relations of the deceased. The bodies of the dead can only be seen and are the cries of the dying heard for a single day. But many days shall not put an end to the mourning of a parent for a beloved son, the joy and support of his age, or the widow or a helpless offspring for a father taken away in fullness of health and vigor. But if this may be justly said that of all wars between man and man, what shall we be able to say that is suitable to the abhorred scene of civil war between citizen and citizen? How deeply affecting is it that those who are the same in complexion, the same in blood, in language, and in religion, should notwithstanding butcher one another with unrelenting rage and glory in the deed, that men should lay waste to the fields of their fellow subjects, with whose provision they themselves have been often fed, and consume with devouring fire those houses in which they had often found a a hospitable shelter." These things are apt to overcome a weak mind with fear and overcome it with sorrow, and in the greatest number are apt to excite the highest indignation and kindle upon a spirit of revenge. If these last has no, has no other tendency than to direct and invigorate the measures of self-defiance, I do not take upon me to blame it. On the contrary, I call it necessary and laudable." But when I mean, but what I mean at this time to prove by the preceding reflections and wish to impress on your minds is the depravity of our nature. James 4.1 From whence came wars and fighting among you? Come now, they not hence even from your lusts that war in your, war in your members. Men of lax and corrupt principles take great delight in speaking to the praise of human nature and extolling its dignity without distinguishing what it it was as its first creation from what it is in its present fallen state. These fine speculations are often grateful to a worldly mind. They are also more and more pernicious in to uncautious and unthinking youth than even to the temptations to a desolate and sensual life against which they are fortified by the dictates of natural consequence and a sense of public shame. But I appeal from these visionary reasonings to the history of all ages and the inflexible testimony of daily experience. These will tell us what men have been in their practice, and from thence you may judge what they are by nature while unrenewed. If I am not mistaken, a cool and candid attention either to the past history or present state of the world, but above all to the ravages of lawless power ought to humble us in the dust. It should at once lead us to the acknowledge, to acknowledge that the just view given us in Scripture of our lost state, to desire the happy influence of renewing grace, each for ourselves, and the long 
for the dominion of righteousness and peace, when, quote, men shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, when nations shall not lift up sword against sword, neither shall they learn war any more. The wrath of man praised, praiseth God as, as it is the instrument of his hand for bringing sinners to repentance and for the correction and improvement of his own children, whatever to be the nature of the affliction with which he visits each person's families or nations, whatever to be the disposition or intention of those whose malice he employs as scourge, the design on his part is to rebuke men for iniquity, to bring them to repentance, and to promote their holiness and peace. The salutary nature and sanctifying influence of affliction in general is often taken notice of in Scripture, both as making part of the purpose of God and the experience of his saints. Hebrews 7, 11. Now, no affliction for the present seemeth to be joyeth, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them with an exercise thereby. But what are we particularly led to observe by the subject of these discourse is the wrath of man or the violence of the oppressor that praiseth God in this respect. It, it has a peculiar tendency to alarm the secure conscience, to convince and humble the obstinate sinner. This is plain from the nature of the, of the thing and from the testimony of the experience. Public calamities, particularly the destroying sword, is so awful that it cannot but have a powerful influence in leading men to consider the presence and the power of God. It threatens them not only in themselves, but touches them in all that is dear to them, whether relations or possessions. The prophet Isaiah says, in Isaiah 16, 8 and 9, Ye, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. And when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants in the world will learn righteousness. He considers it the, as the most powerful mean of alarming the secure and subduing the obstinate. Isaiah sixteen eleven, Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they that they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Ye, at the fire of thine enemies, shall devour them. It is also something represented as a symptom of a hopeless and irre irrecoverable state when public judgments have no effect. Thus says the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah verse 3, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them but they have not get grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. We can easily see the history of the children of Israel, how severe strokes brought them to a submission and, and, pen, and penitence. Psalm thirty-four, thirty-five. When he slew them, then he, they sought him, and they returned and inquired, early after God, and they remembered that God was their rock and their high guard, their redeemer. Both nations in general and private persons are apt to grow remiss 
and lacks in a time of prosperity and seeming security. But when their earthly comforts are endangered and or withdrawn, it lays them under a kind of necessity to seek for something better in their place. Men must have comfort from a quarter or another. They, when earthly things are in a pleasing and promising condition, too many are apt to find their rest and be satisfied with them as their only portion. But when the vanity and passing nature of a created comfort is discovered, they are compelled to look for something more durable as well as valuable. What therefore can be more to be the, more to the praise of God than that when a whole people have forgotten their resting place, when they have abused their privileges and despised their miracles, they should by distress and suffering be made to hearken to the Lord to the rod and return to their duty? There is an inexperienced expressible depth and variety in the judgment of God, as in all his other works. But we may lay down this as a certain principle, that if there were no sin, there could be no suffering. Therefore, they are certainly for the correction of sin or the trial, illustration, or perfecting of the grace and virtue of his people. We are not to suppose that those who suffer most or who suffer soonest are therefore more criminal than others. Our Savior himself thought it necessary to give a caution against this rash conclusion. As we are informed by the evangelist Luke, Luke 8, 1, there were, were present at the season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I suppose we may say with sufficient warrant that it often happens that those for whom God hath designs for the greatest mercy are first brought to the trial that they may enjoy in due time the salutary effect of unpalatable medicine. I must say, take leave to observe, and I hope no pious humble sufferer will be unwilling to make the application that there is often a discernible mixture of sovereignty and righteousness in providential dispositions. It is, it is the prerogative of God to do what he will with his own, but he often displays his justice itself by throwing into the, the furnace those who, though they may not be visibly worse than others, may yet have more to answer for, as having been favored with more distinguishable privileges, both civil and sacred. It is impossible for us to make a just or full comparison of the character either of persons or nations, and it would be extremely foolish for any attempt it, for any to attempt it, either for increasing their own security or impeaching the justice of the supreme ruler. Let us therefore neither forget the truth nor go beyond it. Quote, His mercy fills the earth. He is also known by the judgment which he exalteth. The wrath of man is the most tempting tempestuous rage fulfills his will and finally promotes the good of his chosen. Three, 
The wrath of man praiseth God as he sets bounds to it and or restrains to his providence and sometimes makes it evidently a mean of promoting and illustrating his glory. There is no part of divine providence in which a greater beauty and majesty appears than that than when the Almighty Ruler turns to the counsels of wicked men into confusion and makes them militate against themselves. If the psalmist may be thought of thought to have had a view in this text of truce illustrated in the two former observations, there is no doubt to all he had a particular view to this, as he says in the latter part of the verse, quote, The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. The scripture abounds for instances in which the design of the oppressors were either wholly disappointed or, or in ex- ex- execution fell far short of the malice of their intention. And in some they turned out to be to, out to the honor and happiness of the persons or the people whom they were intended to destroy. We have an instance of this, first of these in the history to which my texts relate. We have also an instance in Esther in which the most mischievous designs of Haman, the son of Hamadatha of Agagate against Mordecai the Jew and the nation from which he sprung turned out at last to his own destruction, the honor of Mordecai and the salvation and peace of his people. From the New Testament, I will make choice of the, that memorable event on which the salvation of believers in every age rests as its foundation, the death and suffering of the Son of God. The great adversary and, and all his agents and instruments persecuted with unrelenting rage when they had blackened him with slander and when they had scourged, scourged him with shame and when they had condemned him in judgment and nailed him to the cross How could they help esteeming their victory complete? But, oh, the unsearchable wisdom of God. They were but perfecting the great design laid for the salvation of sinners. Our blessed Redeemer, by by his death, finished his work, overcame principalities and powers, and made a shoe of them openly, triumphing over them in his cross. With much justice, do the apostles of their and their company offer this dox, doxology of God? They lift up their voice with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea, and that in them is, who by the mouth of that servant David has said, Why did that heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Acts 4, 24 to 28. In all after ages, in conformity to this, the deepest laid contrivances of the peace of darkness have turned out to the confusion of their author. And I know not, but considering his malice and pride, this 
perpetual disappointment and the superiority of divine wisdom may be one great source of his suffering and torment. The cross hath still been the banner of truth, under which it hath been carried through the world. Persecution hath been, been but as, as the furnace of the gold, and to purge it as, it, as a, it of its dross, to manifest its purity, to increase its luster. It was taken notice of very early that the blood of the martyrs was, seed with, of, was the seed of Christianity. The more abundantly it was shed, the more plentifully did the harvest grow. So certain has, his, has this appeared to the most violent infidels, both of early and later ages, have in, endeavored to account for it and have observed that there is a spirit of obstinacy in man which inclines him to resist violence and that severity doth have increased opposition, but the cause what it will. They suppose that persecution is equally proper to propagate truth and error. This tough, this though is part true, will by no means generally hold. Such an apprehension, however, gave occasion to a glorious triumph of divine providence of an opposite kind, which I must shortly relate to you. One of the Roman emperors, Julian, surnamed the apostate, perceiving how impossible it was to surpass the gospel by violence, endeavored to extinguish it by neglect and scorn. He left the Christians unmolested for some time, but gave all manner of encouragement to those of opposite principles, and particularly to the Jews, out of the hatred of the Christians, and that he might bring public disgrace upon Galileans, as he affected the style, affected to style them, he encouraged the Jews to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem and visibly refute the prophecy of Christ, that it should lie under perpetual desolation. But this profane attempt was so singularly frustrated that it served as a matter as any one circumstance to spread the glory of our Redeemer, to establish the faith of his saints. It is affirmed by some ancient authors, particularly by Amenaeus, Marcellinus, a heathen historian, that fire came out of the earth and consumed the workmen when laying the foundation. But in whatever way it was prevented, it is beyond all controversy from concurring testimony of heathens and Christians that little or no progress was ever made to it and that in a short time it was entirely defeated. It is proper here to observe that at time of the Reformation, when religion began to revive, nothing contributed more to facilitate its reception and increase its progress than the violence of persecutors. Their cruelty and their patience of sufferers naturally disposed men to examine and weigh the cause to which they adhered with so much constancy and resolution. At the same time, when they were persecuted in one city, they fled to another and carried the discoveries of popish fraud to every part of the world. It was by some of these those who were persecuted in Germany that the light of the Reformation was brought so early to Britain. The power of divine providence appears in with 
appears with most distinguished luster with small and inconsiderable circumstances, and sometimes the weather and seasons have defeated the most formidable arm armaments and frustrated the most concerted expeditions. N near 200 years ago, the monarchy of Spain was in the height of its power and glory and determined to crush the interest of the Reformation. They sent out a powerful armament against Britain, giving it, a, giving it ostensibly and in my opinion profanely the name of the invincible armada. But it pleased God so entirely to discomfort it by tempt tempests that a small part of it returned home, though no British force had been opposed to it at all. We have a remarkable instance of the influence of small circumstances in the providence of England's history. The two most remarkable persons in the civil wars had earnestly desired to withdraw themselves from the contentions of our times, Mr. Hampton and Oliver Cromwell. They had actually taken their passage on a ship from England when, they are, when by arbitrary order of council they were compelled to remain at home. The consequence of this war, that one of them was the soul of the Republican opposition to monarchical uh, usurpation during the civil wars, and the others in the course of the contest was the great instrument of bringing the tyrant to the block. The only other historical remark I am able, I am to make, is that the violent persecution, which many eminent Christians met with the England met in England, from their brethren who have called themselves Protestants, drove them in greater numbers to a distant part of the world where the light of the gospel and true religion were known, some of the, of the American settlements, particularly those in New England, were chiefly made by them. And as they carried the knowledge of Christ to the dark places of the earth, so they continue themselves in a great degree of purity of faith and strictness of practice, or rather a, great, a greater than is to be found in any pro Protestant church now in the world, does not the wrath of man in this instance praise God? Was not the accuser of the brethren who stirs up the enemies thus taken his craftiness and his kingdom shaken by every means which he employed to establish? And patriots, that's the end of part one. I'll continue with part two tomorrow. This is a, a, a long sermon, and, I, and I'm doing these right now to give some context to the nature in which our pulpit originated. We are a country now adrift with weak pulpits and lackluster sermons. And it is, a, it is an important time that we literally look back at these sermons to realize just how powerful and intense they were. Our pastors were the foundation of this nation. They spoke to truth. And they spoke with fire and they spoke with brimstone to speak about God and the power of God in this world. This argument is fascinating because what it is saying throughout this is that it is man's wrath that ultimately awakens the power of God within us. That the sufferings of war are literally what lead people to the greater understanding of God. That the imperfection of man itself is the mechanism by which we are led to the deeper meaning of God. Consider that in the circumstance we are today. It's amazing. 
when you start to look at the awakening that's happening around and the turning to God, it's happening. It's happening because people's lives are not going in the world of ease and ease and convenience. Rather, people's lives are being shaken. The tree is shaking. The ground is shaking. And everything in which they had counted on isn't happening. They don't have a plan for the future. The idea of savings now is dissipating. Their wealth is disappearing. Their hopes of future jobs is evaporating. Even the application of what they're doing and learning at schools has little meaning anymore. There is a complete shift going on here. And in so doing, people are left with nothing. But they have always had one thing. There's too many are just now discovering, and it's been God. And so in the trials of war and these difficult times and this evil of men ultimately lead us to the glory of God, what a powerful position to take. What an amazing position and sermon to take. Again, this sermon is by John Witherspoon. It was done in 1776, and it was right on the eve of war. He was laying down the truths that people didn't want to hear as people were trying to rally soldiers up to get ready to go fight and kill. He was reminding them that war itself is only a mechanism and a process of the failures of men, the imperfections of us who we are, the fact that we ourselves would burn others' crops, that we ourselves as brethren would burn others' houses, rape the women, kill one another. But in the end, it was the way that we are led to God, sadly, and the only way we would get there. Profound consideration. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled today as we are here reflecting on old sermons, sermons that founded this nation, sermons where the fire and the brimstone were alive, where pastors were active in the fight. They weren't just behind a pulpit on a salary. They were in the world. They were engaged with politics. They were engaged with the people. They were engaged with the war of independence of the nation. And they had their own sweat and grit embedded in that. Father, this is what we lack today. Today we have created a church that is soft and weak. Its temples are corrupt in too many places. What we need are the firing brimstone once again. And so we pray for all those that are called to stand up and speak the word, the powerful words that you put on people's hearts in the love of Christ, the power of the scripture, and the understanding of what it is in our world to be alive, to be alive with God and to be bold and glorious in this time. This is a time where the passions of men must come forward into the greatness of the glory of Christ. Guide us in these times, Father. We say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, patriots, tomorrow we'll continue with the second part of this. We did part one tonight. Again, long sermons. This was about 40 minutes These sermons would typically run about an hour and a half to two hours. And if you can imagine sitting in a building with no air conditioning like we have today, no coffee bar at the back like we have today, sitting in a pew that was wooden with no extra pads, probably wearing some pretty heavy clothing because things were made of wool and linen, you would it would probably be somewhat sweaty in there. People might even smell a bit. In all of this, people would sit calmly and engaged for an hour and a half. When you ever wonder about the literacy of the 
people in the colonies listened to the words of these sermons. These sermons are written for people of the time. The literacy was high. People read. They were engaged. This was the people that founded this nation, and it's no wonder we had such an amazing set of documents that came out of that that set the conditions for what could be the greatest nation in the world and hopefully will be once again. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We're at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow night. Or I'll see you tomorrow, actually, for bended knee. Until then or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel.